Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. I'm coming to you via a brand new microphone, one that doesn't make me sound as if I was broadcasting off the coast of Neptune. Speaking of the offshore and interplanetary, I'm joined by a man that many regard as the Yoda of the Eurodollar, Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Emil. Let's talk about a big thing that happened in the last couple of weeks. We didn't have a chance to talk about it last week because it happened on Friday when we were doing our mailbag, and that was that the employment figures came out for May. There's so many employment figures, it's hard to keep track. There's the establishment report, there's the non-farm payrolls, the household, right? I'm mixing the two up already. Uh, but it was very good news. People expected there to be millions of jobs lost. Instead, there were millions of jobs gained. V-shaped recovery may is the first step forward, Jeff. Yeah, the world's fixed, right? I mean, that's basically where I think most people took from that payroll report. I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know what uh, analysts, economists, or whoever they surveyed to get expectations before these numbers come out. They have no idea what these people were thinking. I mean, look, you can go back to early May. You had Georgia, you had Texas, you had various states already saying, hey, we're going to start opening things back up because, you know, whatever reasons, you know, the, the, the virus had run its course in those places. They felt confident enough to let people out of their houses and to start, re, you know, establishing normalcy a little bit, at least some, some minimum level of normalcy in their lives. You know, so again, and there, you know, there, there, are, there are many protests around the country about people who are itching to get out and get back to their lives again. So, you know, how would that impact the payroll report? I mean, as soon as that happened, you would expect that people who were, who were out of a job because they were prevented from working would all of a sudden no longer prevented from working would go back to working. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, I honestly don't really, I don't understand what the, the analysts and economists were thinking as soon as early May, we saw that, you know, the unemployment or the unemployment claims numbers, the continued claims numbers had fallen dramatically in, in the second week in May. So, I mean, there, there was all sorts of evidence, resource, all sorts of anecdotes that said, okay, the, the non-economic portion, those workers who are prevented from working, they're going to flood back into the job market. They're going to flood back and probably go back to right where they left off. I mean, that was going to happen. Whether it happened, you know, in, in May or June or July, it was going to happen anyway, and the numbers were going to be enormous. What about the, the Challenger Gray and Christmas report for a month and the ADP report? Those came in as big negatives. Maybe that's why people were expecting the government household survey and the non-farm payrolls to come in negative as well. Yeah, and you also had the initial jobless claims, which is separate from continued claims, which said there is still a lot of layoffs taking place. And so we have to separate what is essentially I think two, two very distinct labor markets. There's the one labor market that was hugely depressed by, again, this non-economic shutdown, the government saying, everybody stay in your house. Don't you dare open your offices because we'll come and we'll find you or whatever it was. So there's that part of the labor market, which is, you know, which I think everybody has focused on. That's what they're all picturing. But there's economic damage taking place. It's, it's severe economic damage taking place where, you know, small companies, middle-sized companies, large companies are, are scaling back their operations because of the, the consequences of everything that's going on, lack of liquidity. I mean, any number of reasons 
There are, there are jobs being destroyed for economic purposes. And so we have these two different things that are in some ways, you know, in March and April, they were, they were in sync. We had economic losses and the non-economic losses going on at the same time. But now we have the non-economic group starting to come back to work while all these other indications are saying, okay, while that's happening, there's still these economic losses taking place underneath. And for, for the next couple of months, probably, what we're gonna see is that flood of people back to work in the first category is going to obscure and hide the economic and labor market destruction that's going on on the economic side. The businesses that are going out of business, those workers who have no work to go back to. And so it's kind of like a, you know, a hidden, hidden process, more shadow stuff, if you will, where we're, you know, we're not really recognizing what's going on underneath. That, well, that's the, the important stuff because that's what's gonna impact us over the long run. What you've done is you've put some numbers around it. So if anyone that's listening to us right now, and they're having a hard time of understanding what is this economic loss versus the non-economic loss, you put some numbers to those groups and estimates and pro forma forecasts in your article at Alhambra Investments. What did everyone think was going to happen? Jeff, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, these graphs uh, regarding these two different groups? Yeah, and it's just, it's, it's sort of an illustration of what I'm trying to get at, which is, you know, there's these two different distinct process, two different labor pools. I think everybody imagines the first one, which is the, those who have those workers who are prevented from work because of the lockdowns. And so that's, that's the red series I've shown you here. And I think that's what everybody, or at least people who are believing in the optimistic forecast, that's what they have in mind for the V case where we, okay, we open everything back up. Everybody goes back to work and it's, you know, it's, just, it's like nothing happened again. So I, we get to later in the summer, maybe by fall, everybody's back at work. And this is all just an unpleasant memory. We'll soon laugh about. That's okay. That's going to happen. There are going to be millions of workers who are only unemployed or only out or furloughed or, you know, in part-time, whatever it is, because of the, sh the lockdowns and the shutdowns for non-economic reasons, they haven't been able to work like they used to. That's absolutely the case. And they're, they are going to flood back into the labor market by the millions over the coming months. Now it's the other category that we really need to pay attention to. Now these are the workers who have no work to go back to. Because of the, you know, the, the massive contraction that we're facing, some of these companies are just, they're not even in business anymore. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking about small mom and pop operations or, or your local neighborhood bar that's been closed and will never reopen. I'm talking big companies that are scaling back. You have all sorts of service businesses, goods businesses, transportation business, all, everything in between where companies are reevaluating their structure and, and again, scaling back their operations based on all of these negative factors. And those are economic losses that probably are not going to be replaced. In fact, they're, they're almost definitely not going to be replaced, especially in the short run. And so the question is how they impact us over the intermediate and long run. And as I said, over the coming months, that first group, the red group, the, the workers who are prevented from work but actually have work to go back to, they're going to overwhelm the other group, the non-economic losses that we know are still taking place because of, you know, the data you cited, Emil, including jobless claims and things like that, that tell us underneath it all, we are, the economy is being damaged, severely damaged by everything that's, that's already happened. This is, this is economic damage that's already taken place. 
So tell me if I've got this correct. The red graph I'm looking at, we have this sharp stiletto-like dagger in March and April of job losses, terrible. Then we've got recovery, and you've got it theoretically, you know, it's a pro forma, you've got everyone back that was prevented from working to the lockdowns by July. And then it's just flat after thereafter, right? And then that's the blue- right. That's the that's the scenario, right? That's the V-shaped scenario that people have in mind. That after a couple of months, where everything's back to normal, and then, you know, let's let's okay, let's assume that's the case on this side. Okay, and then the blue one. People might get a little bit confused here. So we've got the blue bars here represented are continuing losses. Are these the initial claims for unemployment? And then the blue dotted dash is all the losses cumulatively, and then you've got, you say, all right, starting in December, we're gonna start recording job growth again. And I think is if what people have to take away from here is that dashed line, that, that big gap, all that stuff is what we have to make up. And, and uh, Jeff, what's the deal with these tiny little blue bars of job growth that you've got <laughs> from December all the way out through 2021-2012, they're tiny. I don't even see them. That's average job growth. I mean, that's not even below average. I, I assume that we would go back to a slightly above average job growth. And that's what it looks like. And it's, it's that, that minuscule because the scale of the losses that we're experiencing right now are that large. And so when we do go back to, when we get out of the contraction phase, assuming we don't have some massive economic recovery, which nobody expects, and we'll get to that in a minute. Assuming we don't have some massive economic recovery like 1984, that's what we're going that, to, that's what we should expect. We just kind of go back to the dribs and drabs of regular average job growth after suffering millions, perhaps tens of millions, if in a worst case scenario, of economic job losses. When you say average job growth, there are two averages that we know of. There's the post-World War II average, and then there's the post-2008 job growth average. Which one are you using here? I'm actually using in between just to, you know, to put a, as, as positive a spin as I possibly can on it. My pro forma was basically saying, what if everything goes really well? And again, you know, it sounds like you say, well, really well, that should be a complete V-shape like the red was. But no, if things go really, really well, we're still stuck with millions and millions of fewer jobs than we would have otherwise experienced. And this graph that I'm now showing here in your article, that's the net of the two. Is that right? Now, this dashed line represents the two different groups. Is yeah, that when we correct? put them together, when we say, okay, the labor markets, these two categories, and we mix them all up together in one, what you find is that over the coming months, those three months I have highlighted, you have massively huge positive numbers. You know, 3.8 million, which is the actual job number in the household survey for May, and then 6 million and then 4 million. I mean, just absolutely gigantic numbers, which, I mean, that's a realistic possibility. That's exactly what we should expect to see over the coming months. But what that will do is it will obscure the underlying problem, which is the cumulative jobs deficit of the, the jobs that are erased that we're not really aware of, except when you go back and look at March and April and say, man, those, those, those job losses were absolutely enormous. Why aren't we going all the way back to zero? Why aren't we going all the way back to even like we should in a, in a V-shaped 
scenario. And the reason is because of the blue stuff, the jobs that have been actually lost permanently because of the economic considerations go, the surrounding, not just the lockdown, but you know, the global financial crisis and the scramble for liquidity. Companies are paring back um, their labor costs because they're reacting to a situation that doesn't lend itself to a full recovery. Now, for those of you that are listening to the podcast right now, you may be wondering what kind of newfangled podcasting visual uh, system are we using? I forgot to mention that we're also you, uh, YouTubing right now. There's a simulcast. So for all our podcasters, if you want to see these important graphs, jump onto YouTube and search for uh, Making Sense, Jeff Snyder, Eurodollar University. Jeff, how long will it take us to get back to zero? And maybe you can talk a little bit about a lot of the economic forecasts that are coming out from the OECD, NABE, the Fed, uh, who else, the CBO. There's been so many, I can't keep track of them. Good news, we don't need to keep track of them because they're all sort of similar. How does your job recovery for the United States match with what other forecasters are saying? Yeah, it's, it's weird, Emil, because you keep seeing these, these forecasts come out and more time and time again, they, look ex they don't just look similar. They're almost exactly the same. They're almost perfectly exactly the same. Remember, these are the mainstream DSGE, GARCH, ARCH, all these, all these econometric models that economists use that all believe that stimulus is very powerful. It's a big positive. The Jay Powell's a huge help. You know, government spending works tremendously well. These models all believe those kinds of things. They've encoded those, that, those assumptions into their, 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 their projections, and they all look the same anyway. What they show is a very large contraction in 2020, this year, mostly up until you know, the second quarter of 2020, and then only a partial recovery next year. So you, what you have is the big contraction right now that's so big, it, it's Great Depression size, and then only, only a slow process of recovering from there forward so that by the end of next year, because nobody really wants to forecast beyond the end of next year, there's so much uncertainty, and because it would be so tremendously depressing. But by the end of next year, all every single one of these forecasts, no matter what, who puts it out or what, what economic account they're surveying or they're projecting, by the end of next year, we're substantially less, substantially less than where we were in the fourth quarter of 2019 when everything peaked. And you have to My favorite not one. just that we're lower than the fourth quarter of 2019, we're that much further beyond, behind where the economy would have been growing had this never happened. So the gap to real economic health, which is you know, you know, post-2008 economic health, is that much bigger still. And it's, an, it's, it's, it's amazing when you see and you think about how these are the most optimistic models out there, those that think stimulus is very effective and this is what they're telling you the V looks like? That's not a V, folks. That's not a V. That's nothing like a V. The, well, there are so many forecasts. My favorite one is from the OECD, and we're looking at it right now in Jeff's article. This thing is only getting started, or all the Vs are light on the right. And my favorite one is coming from the OECD. I think they're the only ones that have thrown in a W for good measure, uh, but there's the classic kind of V not really recovering. 
No, that's but, see, that's that's an L. That is an L-shaped recovery, and it looks like a V if you're just looking at it from a very cursory standpoint and say, "Oh, yeah, it kind of looks like it." No, a V is all the way back to even. That's a V, and not only all the way back to even. A V means getting back there quickly. It means respond. It means the the contraction that took place is a very temporary deviation from an otherwise unbroken line of potential. So if, unless you get back within a couple quarters back to where you were before, back to the baseline, then what that means is it's not a V. <laughs> we're not talking about a recovery at all. So yeah, it's, it's kind of V-shaped. It's, it looks V-ish, but this is not a V. Well, we talked about this in our last or two episodes ago. It looks like a V, just like the aliens look like humans in the television show V but it's a thin veneer. You just got to pull it away and you'll see what's underneath. Jeff, this W, the double hit scenario, this double hit, are they referencing a second wave of the virus or are they referencing a second wave of economic dislocations, bankruptcies? Are they factoring in consumers changing their spending habits, businesses changing their investment and capital expenditure plans. Is that what they mean by double hit, that there's a permanent change in the behavior of the private sector or no? no. They're, they're talking about, like you said, they're talking about the virus, uh, stri the strictly the virus, the second, uh, second wave of the pandemic. And the reason they're only considering that as a possible for the W or possibility for the W is because again, they expect that stimulus, the federal reserve, federal government spending, will prevent or at least limit those kinds of second and third order effects you just described, which are, you know, consumer bankruptcy, not even, you don't even need bankruptcies. Consumers who say, you know, maybe I should be careful about how I spend going forward. I'm not going to be as, as spendthrift as I used to be before March of 2020. And what, what these models are saying is that, no, that stuff's going to be limited. Yeah, we realize there'll be some bankruptcies possibly, but those will be limited because of all of this flood of stimulus. So when they put together that double hit, they're thinking about it strictly as terms of the virus, when we should be thinking about it in terms of the opposite, which are second and third order effects that are already showing up in the data. We see it in consumer credit. We see it in the savings rate. We see it in consumer spending numbers, far and above, uh, you know, business spending numbers, capital expenditure, all these, there's all, any number of indications would suggest that, you know, first of all, stimulus is... It deserves the scare quote that I always use around the term because it doesn't seem to stimulate anything. And even these models are incorporating the, the concept of not stimulus as stimulus, but stimulus as the, the job saved version. Like it was, at least it didn't get worse, which is, you know, that kind of counterfactual is it's extremely unhelpful. Well, it's unhelpful if you want to move society forward, Jeff, but it's very helpful if you want to keep your job. And I know that I'm going to bring it up with my boss, that I'm going to ask them to guide and grade me on whether or not the price of gold went up or down or would have gone up or down had I not written an article on gold. And I know this, is, this leads right into yield curve control, which you wrote about this week, but before we jump, that far, I want to give credit to at least one forecasting organization, the World Bank, which did sort of throw in that there are these potential second order and third order economic effects. And they said, quote, that this does not, let's see, 
the World Bank is one of the first forecasts I've seen that raises not only the return of the COVIDs and Coronas, like the return of some horror movie monster in a gratuitous sequel, but also, quote, financial stress, triggering defaults, or if they are protracted effects on households and firms. And they have a fantastic graph here that I wanted to show when they're look, looking at global GDP and different recessions of yesteryear and yester decade. Jeff, what 2020 is is devastating. Yeah, it's, I think it's 2021 that's actually devastating. That's that's really where everybody needs to focus. And again, you look at it as an upward sloping. There'll be positive numbers associated with it, but look where it leaves us. Substantially, significantly, painfully, disastrously less than what we would than than we experienced in 2008 and 2009. And people who remember 2008 and 2009 don't remember it very fondly, nor should they. So when everybody's talking about these V-shaped recoveries, even these optimistic models are saying it's going to be worse than 2008 and 2009 if everything goes right. That's what, every, that's what you should be focused on. So yes, there'll be positive numbers, but we're in such a deep hole that we're not going to get out of it for many, many, many years, assuming everything goes perfectly. Maybe by the middle of the 2020s, we'll get back to where we should have been. And that's that's hey, that, that's, that's the most optimistic case that all of the econometric models are now put, putting out, that's not a V-shape. It's, it's a, it's, it speaks to the amount of economic damage that we've already suffered that we're going to have to try to deal with going forward. And the more economic damage you have and more economic damage you've taken on, the greater the likelihood that something else goes wrong over the interim period. That's what that's where you you know what we're talking about now is the second order effects where you know we might have another leg of the global financial crisis another stock market meltdown which is you know to me that's not that important but it's what most people perceive of as a global financial crisis but we don't even need that to experience a second order effect and in, in your article uh, a second against consumer credit and interest stimulus we see that change to consumer credit behavior that may be permanent or five, 10 years that is not being factored into these models. What did you see in the latest consumer credit report, credit card usage in, uh, in the United States? Yeah, revolving credit is an important indication of how consumers are perceiving the rest of the economy. Cons revolving credit is about a trillion dollars or a little bit more than that. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a big number. But it's not, it's not this it's not, it doesn't, you know, affect everything else. It's, a, it's more an indication of how everybody or how consumers in general are perceiving conditions in the rest of the economy. What we saw in March and April was the largest declines in, in revolving consumer credit, seasonally adjusted monthly changes, the largest declines on record. And by far, it was enormous changes. And I know most people think, well, yeah, they couldn't go to the mall and spend on the credit card. That doesn't, that doesn't lead them lead consumers to pay down their balances. Nor does it mean normally when we see consumer revolving credit decline, it's not, an, it's not a function of charge-offs and losses. As we saw back in 2008 and 2009, study after study has shown the reason that consumer credit fell so much wasn't because of, of all the losses related to people who couldn't pay off their credit cards. That happened a lot in the lower quintile of the risk, uh, risk tier those who are, you know, probably shouldn't have never had credit cards to begin with. 
By and large, though, most of the decline in revolving credit re related to consumers reacting to the, the ridiculously bad economic conditions of 2008 and 2009 and paying down their credit cards as an act of prudence. So again, it was a, it was a reflection of how consumers perceived the economic conditions they were witnessing and then acting on it in a way that was um, significant. And so if we already see something like that happening in March and April of 2020, that's not a good sign because it's not, it's not, a, it's definitely not about charge offs because we haven't gotten that far into the delinquency process. It's not about consumers who are prevented from spending. It's consumers who just outright paid everything off and probably used the government's payments, you know, the, the, whether it was the helicopter, 1200 bucks or whatever source they got from the government, they used it to pay down their credit cards because it appears at least in the beginning as if they're thinking we got to hunker down for the long run here. And the point being, we may say, well, that makes sense. You should pay down. What we're talking about now is that this could be a permanent change. We're not going back to the way it was. We're not going back to a V. And there was a report. Why don't you said there were some studies done on this credit card usage, and the Fed did a study. And there was this quote in there that absolutely uh, wrinkled my brain. It said that it, quote, it is plausible that consumer expectations of the future did not improve significantly from 2009 to 2010 and 2012 to 2013. This report was based on the events of the great financial crisis and the Fed was observing. What were they observing and what were they surprised about? What was it plausible that consumers were not believing uh, the hero of our day, Ben Bernanke? What the study actually, well, what they assumed was that, okay, as soon as the Great Recession ended, you know, Ben Bernanke acted heroically and saved everybody from a worse fate. Their assumption was that consumers were paying down debt because they perceived bad economic conditions. What they found was that consumers did that, but then they didn't immediately start spending on credit cards again. And so what they thought was, well, this, 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 this runs contrary to our narrative, which was this recovery since 20, 2009. What consumers were saying was what you and I always say is there was no recovery. You should have looked at the credit card data and said, well, wait a minute, consumers are not optimistic following 2009. In fact, they're continuing to do the same kind of behavior, continuing to pay down the revolving credit lines, but just not, not in the same level or to the same degree, but they're continuing to act in this negative fashion years after the Great Recession supposedly had ended. And so, it, again, it's, it's a, it's a it's, a, it's an important measure of how consumers are perceiving the actual economic conditions they, they are related to, not how Ben Bernanke perceives them, not how the economists at the Fed assume things are progressing, but how on the ground, in the real economy, it might actually be happening. And so a, a large drop in con revolving consumer credit is, is a, you know, it's not, it's not the end-all, be-all signal, but it is, a, it is a very big warning sign that we're already seeing these second and third order effects in the economy. However, Jeff, uh, this is not the first time we've gone through this crisis. Jay Powell has seen what's happened before. So in the early 2000s, the Federal Reserve looked at what Japan was doing in terms of QE, and they felt it wasn't loud enough. So they made it louder in 2008. In 2008, though, criticism was they didn't do it fast enough. 
So this time, Jay Powell, and he's getting all the credit in the world, he did it faster. He's doing it louder. He's doing it faster. And as a result, yeah, sure, we have this little credit card uh, downturn. But I don't know if you've noticed, Jeff, but the spread between the 30-year and the five-year U.S. Treasury bond is widening. Uh, and that means inflation will be taking place. That means we need to implement yield curve control. Where on your list, when the coronas were coming, where on your list, how high up on your list did you have bond route as one of the things that we would need to be worrying about right now? Yeah, that was nowhere on my list. <laughs> I don't think it was on anybody's, anybody who's an honest and realistic person, it was on their list either. I mean, yeah, as, as U.S. Treasury prices are screaming upward to record highs and record low yields, everybody was concerned about, oh, at the end of this, interest rates are going to rise precipitously. No, it's not, it's not a realistic concern. It's, it's part of this, this um, esoteric performance art that economists try to use to reconcile how that just we just talked about their their programs their QEs their big big bigger biggest uh, money print, printing programs never work, and so they go back and think they never stop and say, well, we saw it in Japan QE didn't work right from the get go. We even we even talked about it extensively. We did all sorts of studies. The staff economists were busy for years for why Japanese QE didn't work. We also, we just assumed ours would ours would because we know what we're doing. So rather than reevaluate QE and what the Federal Reserve do, they go through all of this reverse engineering, this tortured logic to figure out, well, why didn't QE work the way we thought it would? It obviously works because, I mean, God, we've been talking about this for decades. It, the theory must be sound even if it doesn't work in practice. So what they came up with originally was that if QE does work, if QE is effective like they believe, and if the bond market believed it, then interest rates would rise because that's in a recovery. That's what happens. You know, go back to Milton Friedman's interest rate fallacy in a inflation, especially in inflationary recovery, interest rates will rise to signal that the bond market, the real economy is getting the money it needs. There are more opportunities outside of safe and liquid instruments. Therefore the safe and liquid instruments sell off to meet this recovery. We all want to see, but in terms of economics, they think, well, that could be harmful because rates are rising and we believe rising rates are harmful in terms of stimulating credit. So what they came up with was this idea that, well, okay, that's what happened. Maybe that's what short circuited the recovery because everybody expected QE to work so well that interest rates began to rise prematurely. But wait a minute, that didn't actually happen. We, I mean, we never had that, but there was no 1994 bond massacre that actually took place. So economists have taken it to another level and said, well, it didn't need to actually take place because people were already thinking about it. Just the thinking about how interest rates must be so much higher in the future, that short-circuited the recovery. That created expectations of rising real rates, which choked off the recovery that awesome QE must have actually, actually uh, achieved. And so that's where forward guidance came from. That was the 2012, 13, 14 regime under Bernanke handing off to Yellen where they said, lower for longer which was this ridiculous idea that the bond market needed the Fed to assure it that, oh, you're, you're not going to have any sell-off because we pr we'll promise to keep rates at zero for a long time, long after the recovery has been established. That's where that all came from. That's where forward guidance and the idea of lower for longer came from. And, of course, that was ridiculous, too. 
because bond rates were falling, they had in a reason, for reasons that had nothing to do with the Federal Reserve and everything to do with that downturn back in 2015 and 16. And so yield curve, yield, curve, yield curve control, as they tried in Japan in 2016, they implemented it in September of 2016, or yield caps are what they're calling today, are simply forward guidance taken another step, which is, okay, not only do we promise to keep everything lower for longer, we're actually going to promise to cap yield. We'll buy treasuries at a certain price so that we make sure that interest rates don't rise prematurely or even for a long period of time, when everybody in the bond market that's been piling the treasuries while these idiots were thinking about inflation and, and rate hikes is laughing at these people. Like we need yield caps. Like our biggest concern today is interest rates rising at some point in the future, when even, all, even as all of these mainstream forecasts forecast economic damage, long run economic damage as far as the eye can see, which is tremendously positive for the safest, most liquid instruments out there, yeah, that's, that's our biggest worry right now is yield caps and, and premature rise in interest rate. I mean, it's, it's absolutely positively absurd. Jeff, a lot of people know about the Japanese experience with yield caps, but I don't think many people may know that the Federal Reserve did something similar during the Second World War, where they said, working hand in hand with the Department of the Treasury, that they wouldn't let um, the cost of debt get out of control for very good purposes. There was a total war to prosecute. And so the Federal Reserve said that they would buy or hold down rates if they ever rose above a certain number. I think it was 2%. You can tell me. And I found it very interesting in your article. You said that uh, rarely did they have to step in because much like in Japan right now, nobody, we were still in a depression. And everybody wanted to hold liquid instruments. So it wasn't really the Fed holding it down. It was the private system already holding it down. And then the Fed saying, yeah, or the Bank of Japan, yeah, this is how we're doing. Yeah, and then in the 1940s, as you pointed out, that's, there was a, you know, they considered their patriotic duty to make sure the government could fund itself as much as it needed to, do, it needed to fund. Because we were in, you know, obviously an existential crisis. And they continued those yield caps through the late 40s and into the 1951 when they finally removed it. But as you go back in the data, they very rarely had to buy any treasuries to enforce the cap during World War II. It didn't have to buy a single damn bond in the late 40s and early 50s because there were, the demand for U.S. government debt was overwhelming. Now, what they'll say is that, oh, yeah, the market was just adjusting to the target. Therefore, the target price became the target price, and the market simply simply wanted to follow along with what the Federal Reserve had set, which is, again, totally ridiculous because it assumes that the market only cares about what the Fed is doing, not what the rest of the world is doing. And that's, that's, that's again, one of our central points here at Eurodollar University is when you start by believing the central bank is central, you have to do all of these ridiculous, absurd things to try to make sense of the world around you. Because the fact of the matter is, as we talked about before, before guidance, banks don't give a crap about what the central bank does. If they see opportunity and in inflation out there in the real economy, price target or not, they're going to start selling their, selling their bonds. They're going to sell and they're going to be frenzied about their selling because they don't care about what Jay Powell says. Jeff, so much has happened in the last couple of weeks. We seem to be inflecting. Is it fair to say that right now we're through the worst... And now we're going to be measuring the 
momentum and sustainability of this inflection uh, to see as to whether it's what letter shape of recovery it takes place. But behind us is probably the worst. Yeah, the worst is behind. And it's almost like experiencing a tornado or some kind of, you know, hurricane where, you, you know, the, the, the storm goes through, it blows by, you come out of your house or your bunker, wherever you are sheltering, and you think, ah, we made it, we survived. And then you start surveying the damage. And what you, you, know, what you find is, okay, we, we really did take more damage than we hoped, more damage than we thought. And certainly for those people who are, are thinking about the, the, the full V, the quick V, they're going to be extremely surprised when they find out that this is, this is, we're in for the long haul. Even the optimists, again, going back to all, every single one of the econometric models, even the optimists realize this is a long haul, very painful thing that we've already experienced. And we're going to have to deal with it the best that we can. And if the best that we can is more QE, the bigger numbers and all these alphabet soup of quote unquote liquidity, um, I, wouldn't, I don't know how much stock I would put in even to those optimistic cases. Jeff Snyder, thank you very much for joining the show. You have just listened to Making Sense, the podcast. It's a production of Eurodollar University. And please subscribe to the Making Sense podcast and leave reviews of the show that helps the podcast keep going. Please send me your ideas for future shows. You can reach me in the YouTube comments section or on Twitter at Emil Kalinowski. You can find Jeff's work at Alhambra Investments, at Real Clear Markets, at Twitter, on Twitter, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP.